you're not just preaching to the choir, you're teaching them how to sing. Ladies and gentlemen, we know of America! And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Nice little change of pace here this week. No in-house notes, so we're going to dive right into the action right off the bat here at the beginning of the show. Our guest this week is making his return to BOA Audio. We had him on the show way back in Season 2. He is one of the hardest working researchers in all of ufology. I mean, this guy really has the thankless task of dealing with a myriad of UFO reports. He is Peter Davenport, director of the National UFO Reporting Center. And here this week on the show, it's a bit of a shorty. It's only an hour-long conversation, but it's still packed with a ton of stuff. We're going to get an update from Peter on his move to a decommissioned missile site in Washington State. That's something that he was working on right as we spoke three years ago on the program. We're going to get an update also on the National UFO Reporting Center, what's been going on over there since our last conversation. We're going to revisit how he became the director of the NUFORC in 1994 and get a lot more details on that transition over 15 years ago. We're going to find out how the hotline has changed in the last 15 years, the pros and cons of both the emergence of the Internet as well as cell phones, his dealings with other UFO groups and the issues surrounding sharing of UFO case reports. Really fascinating stuff there. A real interesting look at what goes on behind the scenes amongst different UFO researchers. Peter will lament the woeful coverage of UFOs by the mainstream media and will discuss some noteworthy trends and cases from the last few years that have filtered in to the NUFORC. On top of all that, we're going to hear an amazing story from Peter about his 1997 meeting with government officials in Washington, D.C. They were very interested in the information he's collected at the National UFO Reporting Center. This is really a fascinating event that went down back in 1997 that I'd never really heard about before. I'm sure Peter's probably told the story someplace else, but in my six or seven years here in the field of ufology and esoterica, I'd never heard this story before, and it completely blew my mind. It is definitely a must-hear tale for any serious student of ufology, as it really provides a tremendous potential glimpse into the government's stance on UFOs. You definitely want to hear that part of the interview. In total, really, it's a remarkable and remarkably candid conversation with someone who is a tireless researcher of the UFO phenomenon, Peter Davenport, director of the National UFO Reporting Center. I mean, I don't know about you folks out there, but I've heard about a million UFO stories. I kind of tired of hearing them around UFO story number 100. So to keep hearing them, kind of drives me up a wall. Can you imagine having to run a hotline where people call in their UFO stories 
dozens a day. I think I would go out of my mind. Peter Davenport, hats off to him. Just unbelievable work. I couldn't do it. I don't know too many people that could do it. And he's been doing it for 15 years. He's the director of the National UFO Reporting Center. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Peter Davenport, allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Peter Davenport is the director of the National UFO Reporting Center, and he has been since July of 1994. He was born in St. Louis, Missouri, where he lived to the age of 14. As a boy, he attended high school in St. Louis, Ethiopia, and New Hampshire. He received his undergraduate degree at Stanford University in California, where he earned a bachelor's degree in both Russian and biology, and a translator's certificate in Russian. His graduate education was completed at the University of Washington in Seattle, where he earned an MS degree in genetics and biochemistry of fish from the College of Fisheries, as well as an MBA degree in finance and international business from the Graduate School of Business. He's worked as a college instructor, a commercial fisherman, a Russian translator in the Soviet Union, a fisheries observer aboard Soviet fishing vessels, a flight instructor of gliders, and a businessman. Peter was the founding president of a Seattle-based biotech company, which at one point employed over 300 scientists and technicians. He's had an active interest in the UFO phenomenon from his early boyhood. He experienced his first UFO sightings over the St. Louis Municipal Airport in the summer of 1954, and he investigated his first UFO case during the summer of 1965 in Exeter, New Hampshire. He's been a witness to several anomalous events, possibly UFO-related, including a dramatic sighting over Baja, California in February 1990, and several nighttime sightings over Washington State during 1992. In addition to being the director of the National UFO Reporting Center, he is a current member of MUFON and is a former co-state section director for King County, Washington, and a former director of investigations for the Washington State chapter of MUFON. His website is www.ufocenter.com. Pretty simple, all one word, easy to find, www.ufocenter.com. Check it out, a wealth of UFO sighting reports in there. Cool database, you can punch in your home state, your hometown, and find out what kind of UFO sightings have been reported in your neck of the woods. Very fascinating, enjoyable, and helpful resource for any student of the UFO phenomenon. With all that said, we've got nothing left to talk about, so let's get down to business, my friends. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on November 12, 2009. Peter Davenport, talking about the National UFO Reporting Center and the world of ufology on BOA Audio Season 5. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio. Very excited to have our guest here on the program for the second time. He's making his return to BOA Audio. As I was putting together the list for Season 5 guests, I definitely wanted to revisit some of my favorite guests that we've had on the program in the past and sort of catch up with them and talk to them and really uh, reintroduce them to the BOA Audio listening audience. A lot of people have come along in the past few years and haven't had a chance to check out our archive and haven't had a chance to hear from some of these folks yet. So it's going to be really a lot of fun. Our guest is really a legend in the world of ufology. Uh, Haven't heard much from him in the last few years. He was on BOA Audio about three years ago, almost to the day. And it's high time we brought him back here on the program. He's the director of the National UFO Reporting Center, which is pretty well known throughout the world of ufology. really is the uh, be-all and end-all of UFO sighting reports 
that's where you really want to send your UFO report if you see something and it really is just an amazing warehouse of UFO reports from just stretching back decades and he's been doing some amazing work there since 1994 as I said he is the director of the National UFO Reporting Center and a real legend in the world of ufology he has put in countless hours of his life really to try and help everybody solve this enigma and unwrap this riddle that is the UFO phenomenon so it's really a thrill to have him back here on the program Peter Davenport welcome back to BOA audio well thank you Tim it's delightful to be back after three years absence it's been too long but uh, I'm very pleased to be here with a lot of new stories and thank you by the way for the very kind introduction and kind words are that's about the only thing that keeps me working here it's one of the hardest jobs I've ever had in my life so I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to appear and share some good information with our listeners today and also really appreciate the kind words. Oh, absolutely. And I meant them, too. I'm not just kissing your butt here. I mean, you put in so much time into this UFO phenomenon that it's that it's just unreal. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I sometimes think that you don't get your due because nowadays UFO reports sort of uh, taking a backseat to a whole bunch of other stuff going on. And also, you know, so many other places are collecting UFO reports now that people seem to have forgotten about how great the National UFO Reporting Center is and really how it is the standard bearer of all places to collect UFO reports. Yeah, well, thank you again. Uh, yeah, it's very amusing from my seat here in uh, Washington State to see all the proliferation of all these UFO organizations and people calling themselves UFO investigators. Uh, more often than not, I see many of my cases, the cases that we've developed, uh, being discussed by them. Well, that's as I don't mind that. Uh, I do always welcome uh, attribution if they take our data, but what uh, I find troubling in some of those cases is people are speaking as though they're experts on the case or experts on the subject when, in fact, uh, it doesn't appear to me that they warrant that label. So, yeah, we... Uh, we generate a lot of cases, and I'm very pleased to report to our audience that we're the organization of choice for many law enforcement organizations, military bases, and most of all, the FAA. Uh, if, they, if an FAA air traffic controller receives a report from an, a crew uh, or a pilot, uh, they actually, in their handbooks, uh, the FAA personnel are to d direct that party to us or contact us directly so we can develop the case. So we're in a very good position, I think, for not only receiving cases, but what makes our organization unique here in Washington is the fact that every case I receive, I post to our website. It's all anonymous, of course, as you know, mm -hmm. so nobody will know who submitted the report. We treat reports and contacts and information we receive as though they were medical records or legal files. We don't share the names or addresses or personal information, but that makes us unique. We post all of our data for anybody to see who's interested. That's great. Yeah. See, like I said, you guys set the standard really for UFO reports. That's unfortunate, this news about people just taking the reports off the site and claiming like they took them. That's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had one fellow uh, from the southeastern United States who once downloaded all of the reports on our website. That was about fifty to 55,000 reports. Put them on his website and had the audacity to state that they were copyrighted by him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, he 
did finally remove them from his website uh, after a telephone call from our attorney who suggested that that was probably not appropriate behavior. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll say. Wow. Yeah, I can only imagine. Before we even get into the, the NUFORC, let's get a little update on your big move to the the abandoned missile base there, oh, up there yeah. in Washington, because I found that to be so fascinating, and I read a really great article. I hope you liked it, too, uh, for the LA Times about, about your work and, and oh, your... Yeah. And your new residence. I don't know if you're still, if you've moved there yet, or, or what. I heard there was some problems, sort of uh, making the transition. But I, that's kind of what yeah. I'm looking for an update first, because I found that to be amazing that yeah. that someone would move to an awesome place like that. I love it. I wish I could move there. For the last ten years or so, I've I've thought it would be neat to buy a missile site and turn it into a home. I purchased it just over three and a half years ago. Uh, I think it was March of 2006 when I purchased it, and with the intent of turning it into a house into a home, uh, essentially a one-bedroom apartment, if you will, albeit a very large bedroom apartment. <laughs> it's about 18,000 square feet underground, all concrete. One room, to give you some idea of how large it is, is 54 feet by 90 feet underground with, uh, I think it's uh, six or eight columns in it holding up the ceiling. The ceiling's 22 to 24 inches thick. And I may still turn it into a home, but I just, for the time being, enjoy uh, owning it and having it in my possession and my uh, location here. But I haven't turned it into a residence yet. I find that I enjoy being part of a community, which I am here in eastern Washington, out in the wheat fields of Washington. So I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but it's a really, really neat place. Yeah, it sounds really cool, and hopefully... uh... Yeah, it sounds like it could be really developed into something awesome down the yep. line. So yep. it's good that it's in the hands of someone in, in ufology. So, you know, we need that kind of landscape. Point of interest, I discovered after I had purchased it that it is the first underground ICBM missile site the U.S. government ever owned or operated. It was commissioned in April of 1961 and decommissioned by 1964. Oh, wow. So it's uh, quite a bit of history to it. That's interesting. They only even had it up and running for three years. Yep. Wow. A big waste of money, in my opinion. Sounds like it, but that's the government for you. Yep. All right, now let's talk a little bit about the NUFORC. Now, when we first talked three years ago, you shared the amazing story of how you ended up becoming the director of the National UFO Reporting Center in, back in 1994. But let's revisit that because I, I find that fascinating. And as I said to you at the time when we originally did the interview, you know, so many people have heard you on radio programs like Rents and Coast to Coast, you know, talking about the latest cases that uh, the story of how you became the head of the NUFORC really has fallen kind of by the wayside as we talk about the latest news. So let's, yeah. you know, let's, let's get that down again here for the history book so people can remember how all this unfolded. Yeah. Well, I welcome an opportunity to talk about that because it's sort of interesting and a bit humorous how I became uh, – director of the National UFO Reporting Center, and in one word, I could characterize how it happened, and that word would be misfortune, or <laughs> two words, pure misfortune. But on a Friday night in uh, July of 1994, I was talking to a friend uh, with whom I attended UFO meetings, and he said, by the way, did you know that Bob Gribble, the gentleman who had founded the National UFO Reporting Center in October of 1974, is considering shutting it down? after 20 years of having operated it. And I said, no, I didn't know that. So looking back on it with great regret, uh, I did make a call to Bob Gribble 
that was my next call, and I told him that that is a job that I would consider doing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And before I knew it, he said, Peter, it's yours. <laughs> and from that point forward, I've been running that center. It, we hooked up the telephone at my residence uh, one month later, and uh, whereas when I took over the job, I expected one, two, or three calls per week, and before I knew it, I was taking one, two, or three dozen calls per day. Wow. So it was about one to two orders of magnitude more calls than I had anticipated, and I panicked because here I was operating the hotline solo, and it's a lot of work and a lot of frustration. Dealing with the public is not something for which I was uh, optimally designed. And uh, in a very short period of time, I was hooked. Yeah. When when you have a hotline that has people reporting seconds or minutes after their sightings what they had just seen, it's very difficult, I find, to walk away from that. Yeah. Now, I do want to sort of jump on something you said, though. He said uh, with regret that you took the decision, that you made the decision to take over the the hotline now, but you've been doing it for nearly 15 years now. So I guess like, I guess you don't regret it too much then because, because you're still doing it. Yeah, actually uh, 15 years, two months and 17 days to be exact. Well, who's but, counting? Uh, yeah. Who's counting? Uh, yeah, I have been doing it. And what has kept me doing it all that time was the assumption early on the assumption that I might be able to find a funding source for it, but that has not happened. And so for 15 years, I've paid 300 to 500 bucks a month out of my pocket, plus work two shifts per day for no pay. And uh, that's, I guess, what causes me to say I regret it. But uh, I am driven. I'm, I have a very strong intellectual bent, I think, or academic bent, and uh, I am fascinated by the UFO phenomenon, and that and a few kind words from time to time and a few radio programs, invitations to appear, are, I think, what keep me going principally. Yeah. Now, before you took over the hotline, you were obviously interested in UFOs and ufology and stuff like that, right? Of course. Yeah. In fact, I saw my first UFO, I believe the date was July 17, 1954, at the St. Louis Airport, Lambert Field. Very, very dramatic sighting. A sighting that was witnessed by certainly hundreds, and I think probably, almost certainly, more like thousands of people saw that object. People can read my account of what I saw for July 1954 on our website. I, unlike uh, the overwhelming majority of witnesses to UFO sightings, have written down my case, and I hope we can talk about the necessity to write down a person's, the details surrounding a person's sighting of a UFO. I estimate, Tim, that out of 10,000 um, adult Americans who have witnessed a bona fide UFO, that only one out of 10,000 people has ever written down the facts surrounding that. Wow, that's, that's a startling number. It is. And thank heavens, uh, more people aren't doing it because it would dramatically increase my workload <laughs> by about four orders of magnitude if uh, if they actually did write them down. But one of the things I always like to bring to any audience is, irrespective of whenever a person has seen or thinks he or she has seen a UFO, it's important to write it down, actual black ink on white paper. 
it doesn't do any good to talk about it for your entire lifetime. You have to write it down in order to capture that information and make it available through an organization like the National UFO Reporting Center. So I encourage anyone who might be listening to my voice, no matter where they are in the world and no matter how long ago they saw a UFO, to write it down to the best of their ability to remember it and submit a formal report. You don't have to remember the exact date. You can click a box that says the date I've indicated here is approximate. So anybody reading your report will know it's an approximate date. But uh, people have to write down write down their sightings in order for that information to be use, uh, usable. Yeah, and that brings me to something that you mentioned to me in the notes that we uh, had prior to the interview, that many of the reports you're getting uh, are actually kind of poorly written uh, and, and really aren't conveying yeah. the kind of information that, that we really sort of uh, need in the sightings. Yeah, it's really a shame. The quality of communication, written communication as well as oral communication over the telephone, I wish it were better. But uh, the thing that really stymies me, really surprises me, is that people on one hand have been witness to a UFO event, UFO-related event, and yet they can't take 15 minutes to write out a nice, clear, accurate, objective description of what they saw. They just cob together a bunch of words and throw it at us as if that's a report. Well, I understand that most people... Many people are not able, they're not skilled writers, but that's what spell checker's all about. You can uh, check it and correct all those errors or have somebody proofread it and uh, spruce it up, but that's what we're stuck with. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, I guess to sort of guide people in the right direction then, what sort of information would you classify as the meaningful information from a sighting that they should pay attention to and have, sure. have written sure. down? Well, there's nothing special about a UFO report. People call here and they want a list of everything they uh, should say and and so on and so forth. You don't have to do that. Uh, all you, really what we're looking for is a one, two, or three paragraph description of what a person thinks he has seen. And that should include where the person was, where is he located, what direction was he or she looking, north, south, east, or west. Some people say, well, I was just, I was looking just to the left of my neighbor's barn. <laughs> well, that doesn't communicate any real information because the reader doesn't know where that person's barn is. So we invite people to use north, south, east, or west. We also like to know an angle of elevation. How high up was a person? Was the object closer to the horizon or was it closer to overhead? And you can measure that with angles and degrees, 10 degrees up, 45 degrees up, 60 degrees up, or whatever. The, one of the shocking things to me is how few American young Americans know what an angle is. They, they cannot express a, a simple angle in terms of degrees. But uh, what the time and date were, that's important. How big the object appeared to be relative to a star or a full moon or the sun, for example. Just basic, basic, basic stuff. Yeah. Uh, what the color was, what the shape was, any distinguishing features on the surface. Just very basic information. In other words, what we invite people to do is write a short uh, narrative. It's best if it's in chronological sequence from start to finish of what happened, what the objects looked like, what they did, and 
perhaps an addition or an addendum as to why the witness thought it was unusual, whether they ruled out certain things. It couldn't have been an airplane, not a meteor, not the aurora borealis, and so on. This is this is just common sense. This doesn't take a PhD to do this, and that's what we invite people to do, is record their sightings as accurately and completely as they can. Yeah. Obviously, the Internet changed everything for UFO reports and taking in these uh, reports from people who had the sightings, but... Yeah. You know, talk a little bit about what the the NUFORC was like when you first took over. I imagine it was really just like a phone line and a and a legal notepad or something. I can't imagine yep. it could have been any more complicated than that. But yeah, how's it changed over the years? Yeah, that was about it. All all I inherited was a hotline, a telephone number that had been widely advertised all across the country, thanks to the very fine efforts of my predecessor Bob Gribble, who had uh, at his own expense. Uh, printed up a bunch of blaze orange stickers that he could send out to law enforcement organizations and so on and so forth so that if they got a UFO report, they would have the number right there by their telephone. They could give it to the caller. Uh, the Internet has been a boon to UFO research because it's allowing investigators and witnesses to handle or transfer a great deal of information very quickly, very cheaply. Uh, also very efficiently because um, a telephone call really is not a report. A report is a written document, again, black ink on white paper with all of the details that records the event, provides all the meaningful information, and can, which can be shared with other people anonymously, of course. We don't we don't reveal any personal information about the people who submit these reports, and they're instructed not to put it into the text of their descriptions, of course. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, the Internet has allowed all of that to happen. It's been very useful, but in a sense it's been our downfall too because it allows anybody to set up a website. Anybody gets a sudden gas pain, they make a decision or decide that they're going to set up a UFO website, and unfortunately, the proliferation of websites dedicated to ufology has grown explosively, meteorically. And what is happening is it's, as you suggested quite properly and accurately at the beginning of the program, it's tending to spread out that information, whereas what we should be doing is bringing all or most of the information to uh, a small number of sites so that a person can go there and see all of the reports that have come in for a, a given period, for example, or from a given area, and keep all of that information sequestered in one location. But So the Internet has been a great help to us, but it's also been a great hindrance in some respects. Yeah. So what I encourage people to do, there are a lot of people who are working as hard as I am in the UFO field, and they would like to collect their own reports, which is understandable. But what I invite them to do is, if they have their own website, to if they receive a report that the National UFO Reporting Center has not received, to summarize it and submit it using our online report form, and then putting a link in their report that will take the visitor to our website directly to the original report in its entirety. Yeah. So then people can come to 
the National UFO Reporting Center, they see all these reports with their respective dates and times and places, but if they want to read the original report, they can click on the link, go to that report, and the original source of the report gets full credit for having captured that information. Now, that sounds like a good plan in theory, but I know the way the UFO world works. Have you run into people that don't want to share? Yeah, and uh, you're right. In theory, it's a great, great practice. In practice, it remains a theory. People don't like to work. That's the problem. People don't like to take even 10 minutes to write something down or share it. But interestingly, on the other hand, we get requests all the time for our reports to be sent to those investigators. What I'm about to do is put a statement on our website saying, uh, if you have reports, please submit them. We're happy to share our reports with legitimate UFO investigators, but we expect reciprocity. I can't tell you how many thousands of times investigators have sent me an email or called me saying, oh, we have this half dozen reports, and I see you, you have one report for the same time period, the same location. I wonder if I could have your report. And I say, well, yeah, in principle, I'm willing to share it, but would you care to share your reports with our center? Oh, no, 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 they say. Those are our reports. So <laughs> you, we're dealing with humans here. And humans are imperfect creatures. That's for sure. Speaking, actually, that's a perfect segue to uh, uh, what I know has become a thorn in your side. And we talked about it uh, on the interview three years ago. And I'm hoping, well, I know actually that things haven't changed. They actually sounds like it's gotten worse. But the prank callers and yeah. these teenagers giving you a hard time at the, uh, at the hotline, um, yeah. what's the status of that whole thing? It's getting worse. And uh, we may just uh, shut down the hotline or shut it down to live answering because some days, it, I would say between 30 and 80% of our calls in any given day are prank calls from punk kids. And what troubles me is that they're doing this, they recognize they can do it with impunity, but uh, I've never heard such filth based on four-letter words in all my life. Uh, Teens, preteens, college students call here and just scream obscenities. And two things. One, why are they doing it? Number two, why are these kids not being supervised by their parents? You mentioned the uh, web or the internet, Tim, earlier on. What effect has it had on us? Well, by and large, good, but the cell telephone has had a disastrous effect on the field of ufology because it's allowing all these prank calls. When you and I were kids, the only telephone available to us was in the hallway of our parents' residence yeah. where we lived. And you couldn't get away with this. Today, that's a different story. Kids have their own cell phones and they're using them like weapons and for entertainment purposes. And uh, it's been a disaster for me. I'm. It's changed my character. It's changed my willingness to want to work on behalf of the American people. Uh, it's really a, the greatest annoyance I can imagine. Yeah, it sounds like it would be really get on your nerves very fast. Yeah, yeah. I would suggest some kind of like just, just screen the call somehow. You know, I guess that's the only thing well, you can do, right? That's right, but to screen the call, you've got to answer it. And uh, even if you're just screening it with an answering machine, you have to listen to all that stupidity, and it ends up having the same effect on you as it 
would have if you were to answer the telephone. So I'm going to have to do something. I'll tell you, it has engendered in me some really black thoughts towards young Americans and even their parents. Uh, parents should be aware that their children are capable of getting into trouble with that cell phone. And they ought to supervise. What I think we ought to have is a national policy whereby parents scan their children's telephone bill. In other words, every cell telephone should have a bill printed out every month, and that goes to the parents, or parents should demand it from their children. If they, if parents pay the bill, they ought to scan the scan it to see what their kids are doing with that cell phone. That's that would solve the problem, or most of it, in a hurry. Unfortunately, parents are not doing their jobs today. Not well enough, in my opinion. I'll agree with that, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's a that's a problem across the board, whether it's prank phone calls and cell phones or just, you know, kids causing trouble. Parents yep. just, you know, they've just checked out. Yep. <laughs> One story that came up that uh, we... I had been talking about with Peter Robbins and Nick Redfern. They were here uh, at my house uh, about a month ago, mm-hmm. right at the time of the whole Balloon Boy story that exploded on the mainstream media and everything. Do you think that had any – we were sort of debating this amongst ourselves as we were watching you know, the, the coverage and the subsequent coverage and sort of wondering if it would have a deleterious effect on people reporting UFO sightings because either they no. thought they'd be laughed at or they thought it would be a hoax or you know, sort of just – just maybe cause some sort of disillusionment with uh, potential witnesses. These things go on all the time, Tim. doesn't have any effect on the job I do. Uh, It may lead a handful of people to believe that all UFO reports are like the balloon boy. I actually was in Greeley in Fort Collins, uh, Colorado, on the 15th of October, the day after it had happened, and uh, heard about the case. And just dreaded how many reports there might be of the UFO floating over Colorado. But it really, I don't think I received a single report, and I'm delighted by that fact. Um, I think people are much more intelligent than that. They recognize that a helium balloon doesn't have anything to do with the UFO phenomenon. They're reported from time to time, clusters of helium balloons. People see them, photograph them, report to us, and send us the photos. But we can... We can uh, winnow those out fairly quickly. It, that's what a, being a skilled UFO investigator is all about, yeah. being able to detect that and eliminate it from the stream of data. Oh, yeah, and I'm sure having seen so many cases over the years that you can pretty much spot them. Uh, hundreds, you know. hundreds of thousands. There's a guy down in California flies a radio-controlled model airplane at night with lights on it and so on and so forth. There's a MiG-19 out of Bremerton, Washington, that uh, has pyrotechnic pods on its wing. We hear about these things all the time, but that's what I'm supposed to do is eliminate all that data from our data stream and uh, give people the real thing. I was looking at the, uh, the, the website here, and let's make sure we get that out there for folks. Obviously, it'll already be mentioned at the beginning of the show, but it's, the, it's uh, org. That's the website. Well, I, forgive me for cutting you. Oh, it's that, okay. People will, that address will get people to our website, but we have a, a, a virtual website address, just ufocenter.com, U-F-O-C-E-N-T-E-R.com. UFO Center is all they need to remember. Nine letters, one word, UFO Center, 
and if they type that in, they'll go right to our website. That can take them to our online report form, to our database, to case briefs, all sorts of things they can read there. Yeah, yeah, it's monstrous, uh, the, the database of cases on there. And I was looking at just some of the latest stuff that you had on there recently, and one sort of event, I guess you could say, sort of piqued my interest here, and it's uh, Saturday, August fifteenth, two 2009, where you got reports from 11 states of uh, of UFO sightings, and I guess that kind of was what. First of all, you know, what's the story with that with that particular night, August fifteenth, two thousand nine? You know, you you ask a legitimate question, but all I can say is you've just summarized it. Uh, on that particular night, we got reports from all across the United States, as you say, eleven states, Minnesota, New York, very very bizarre objects, clusters of objects, red objects moving across the United States. And what's the upshot of it? Well, all I can do is collect the data and post it. Yeah. What were they? Have no idea. Were they meteors? Clearly not. Were they aircraft? Clearly not. Were they aurora borealis? Clearly not. Were they helium balloons with the balloon boy? Clearly not. Therefore, what were they? And they exhibited characteristics that are altogether in appropriate or inconsistent with terrestrial aircraft or events. So what was it? They passed through uh, terminal control areas or Class B airspace, seen all over the country, and that's all I can report. Uh, until we have a long-handled butterfly net that allows us to reach up and grab one of these things, <laughs> bring it down to ground level and disassemble it and talk to the occupants, I don't think we really can say what they are. Yeah. It's up to them to show themselves to us, to introduce themselves to us. We're not going to be able to do the reverse, I think. That seems to be the case. Now, what's surprising is this is, sounds like a tremendously remarkable evening of UFO activity, and I really haven't heard anything about it, even not just in the mainstream media, but even in the, in the underground, you know, uh, esoteric media. I'm surprised that this, yep. this, uh, this night, uh, August 15, 2009, didn't get more coverage in the subsequent uh, days afterwards. You're not just preaching to the choir. You're teaching them how to sing. Yeah, I echo your concerns. Uh, what is wrong with the American press? Where are they? Why are they not covering these events more widely? Uh, I know of only one paper up in northern Minnesota. There was a very dramatic sighting up there. I think it was on the very early, in the very early morning of the 16th of August. A uh, gentleman was paced by at least one of those craft up in northern Minnesota and uh, St. Peter's County, I think it was, Minnesota, and uh, one newspaper editor decided to cover it. But that was it. <laughs> and I just don't understand what's wrong with the American press. They've turned into a group of, of toothless, effete lapdogs instead of being the aggressive... Uh, go get them type people that we think of them as being, but they in fact are not. They are receiving uh, wire service feeds. They regurgitate that on the fronts of their newspapers, and that's it. Yeah, and press releases. Yeah. Now, with regards to that particular night, is that, I presume that's sort of a unique situation, but do you have sort of those types of evenings, I guess you could say, where 
you know, someone will call in a case from one state, and you can all, and then you know, then you'll get a report from a, an adjoining state. We can almost follow the path of this of this Absolutely, crowd. recalls to mind many such cases. Uh, September ninth, nineteen ninety four. Uh, the fifteenth of March, nineteen ninety five. It recalls the Phoenix Lights event. They lasted all night long. The phone lit up like a Christmas tree. I didn't even turn the tape recorder off. I just answered telephone calls and so on and so forth. There have been many, many such nights. The night of Tinley Park, I think that was August uh, 21st, 2004, if I'm not mistaken. There have been many, many, many such cases uh, one case in particular was August 25th, 1995. You could have seen the object from New York City if you'd been outside. Uh, an object uh, slashed down from uh, from Ontario, Canada, across Lake Erie into Pennsylvania, and it was a very dramatic night. I'm, again, flabbergasted that so few members of the press are aware of these things and that so few fewer still are even interested in them. Yeah. And if it were not for radio programs like this, I don't know how we ufologists would be able to awaken the American public. We, I want them to get out of their Ichabod Crane-like slumber and, first of all, start writing down their reports, and secondly, I would like the American press to start reporting these things. What they usually do, and this makes me grind my teeth, is they cover stories like the balloon boy in Colorado in October yeah. and uh, people who claim that to avoid abduction you you should encase your baseball cap in tin foil and other such stupidity that our press seems to just thrive on it it really has no meaningful role to play in ufology. I want people to just report the facts, what we expect the press to do, and in point of fact, they're not. They've just become idiots, in my opinion. Yeah, but I did sort of notice that things seem to be changing a little bit for the better uh, after the O'Hare incident, because that sort of segued right into the Stephenville. It seemed like 2007 was a pretty good year for us as far as getting quality UFO stories on, on the news. What do you think? There are a few good reporters out there. Leslie Keene has done a very nice job of reporting what's going on vis-a-vis ufology. Uh, there's another one, uh, Zach Van Eck at the Deseret News in Utah, but he's been throttled. His his editors told him that he couldn't do any more articles on animal mutilations. That's my understanding. Huh. So there's editorial control that uh, does not allow these very, very fine journalists to do their job in many cases. I once talked to the Dallas News. Uh, I was trying to get to them a very dramatic sighting, and I was talking to an editor's secretary, and I heard him shout in the background, tell the, and he used an epithet, that our newspaper doesn't handle UFO reports. (laughs) And then there's the Chicago Tribune, uh, that took my data about the O'Hare airport case and represented that it had been they who had developed the case. Nothing could be further from the truth. I had to beat them over the head to get uh, John Hilkovich to even awaken to the case. And it was weeks, even months after the case had occurred 
that he published his article on the 1st of January 2007, and he didn't even mention the fact that the case had come from the National UFO Reporting Center. It's infuriating, and I've talked to him very sharply on several occasions about that. He finally, months later, uh, wrote a retraction, but very, very shoddy journalism, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Nobody reads retractions anyway, so it's like, you know, yeah. they always put those on page like 13 or something. Yeah. Pardon the interruption, but I'm Mike Wilbon. Tony, more than 30 people in Stephenville, Texas, say they saw a UFO. You believe them? Tony Kornheiser, believe them. Who do you think was up there getting probed? You're listening to Banal of America Audio. I don't have any money, so I'm going to have to pay for these comic books with my poo. Chris, how come you don't have any money? I thought you had a paper route. Well, I'm taking a sabbatical to focus on my pottery. Oh, how's that working out? Not good, Meg. Not good. Just sort of alluded to the night uh, of the Phoenix Lights incident and how there have been other sort of nights like that. What was the night of the Stephenville event like? Did you, did you Was it sort of a similar night or was it a little quieter? It was a similar night, and regrettably, I was tied up in a snowstorm up here in the state of Washington. I believe it was the 8th of January, 2008, when that occurred. I think that was a Tuesday, and we had a very uh, a severe snowstorm up here. I was coming back from a political meeting, and uh, when I got home, I was exhausted. Uh, the phone was filled up with messages, and I was very busy and wasn't able to return those messages as quickly as possible. But... I've had a couple of those gentlemen on Jeff Rentz's program talking about their sighting, very, very dramatic sighting. And again, that was a case in which the press did a fairly, very, fairly good job of covering the issue, and it made the national press. Uh, I think it made uh, national electronic media as well. Uh, but yeah, that was a very good case. We had an object that exhibited profoundly bizarre flight characteristics. It could outrun two F-16s that were chasing it, uh, out-accelerated them dramatically. And uh, I guess the and the fact was, the fact that made it really interesting is all of this occurred within uh, 50 miles or so of uh, uh, where President Bush was uh, located at the time on his ranch. Yeah, yeah. To the public, they hear about the Stephenville case, and they think this is like a rarity, but would you say that, you know, obviously you get a ton of reports, so yeah. they're not they're not a rarity, really. If No, they're not. And if people want to satisfy themselves, I was born in Missouri 61 years ago, the Show Me State, and so it's sort of a tradition for me. If people want to see the facts they or want to know something, not only do they require seeing it with their own eyes, but they're compelled to use their eyes, I think. They should just go to our website. We post 15 to 20 reports a day of UFO sightings. Not all of them UFO sightings. I leave in a few of the reports of sightings of the International Space Station. You wouldn't believe what people report they see when the International Space Station flies over. They claim they can see aliens looking back at them and all sorts of nonsense. <laughs> it's just frightening to me what the average member of the American public believes or what can happen to that person if he or she thinks he's seen a UFO. They just, they sort of lose all control. But yeah, we, we post a lot of reports and I'm shocked Again, shocked. I, I'm in stunned disbelief that members of the 
press are not looking at this. I proposed about a year and a half ago, I proposed to the spokesman review here in, near me in Spokane that I do a, a column, maybe a monthly column on the month's worth of reports that have come in. And yeah. Boy, I, I've never seen such a negative reaction in all my life. They were, they just sat there with glassy-eyed stares. I think it would be good press. It might help them sell a few more newspapers, for heaven's sakes. Yeah. The uh, newspaper industry is on the ropes. They better do something to get things going again. Exactly. Yeah, that's a that's a very good point. You know, maybe that'll help the the paranormal community in, in the long run if some of these newspapers woke up to that fact that the paranormal sells and, and no one's buying newspapers anymore anyway. So you might as well take the risk, I guess. Yep. Now, uh, what you you mentioned here in the notes that you sent me that you actually met with people from the U.S. government who were interested in in the National UFO Reporting Center and some yeah. of your cases. Tell me a little bit about that, because that's pretty yeah. fascinating. That you don't really too often hear about the government being proactive as far as reaching out to UFO researchers. Yeah, that was a very interesting meeting, Tim. Um, I think it was a result, possibly, of two things. Number one, the Phoenix Lights case which occurred March 13, 1997, of course, Thursday mm -hmm. night. And also, about two weeks later, a U.S. Air Force pilot and his A-10 uh, ground attack aircraft uh, disappeared, uh, Captain Craig Button. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, I don't think either he or his aircraft has ever been found. Whoa. And it was widely publicized. I think it appeared in USA Today. But the man is missing. And I think that incident, I, I cannot suggest that his disappearance was in any way UFO-related because I don't have any data that suggests that. But it happened in the vicinity of where the Phoenix Lights event had occurred and shortly after it had occurred. And it remains a mystery. How does an Air Force pilot, an experienced Air Force pilot, he was a captain, disappear with an aircraft? And he didn't have enough range, given that we know he was headed north when he was last seen. We know that he did not have enough fuel in that aircraft to get out of the United States. And it invites the question, what happened to him? Where's the plane? Yeah. And the Air Force has, I think, made a few public announcements that the bombs that were known to have been attached to the aircraft have been found up in the mountains, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But they never found the airplane, again, to the best of my ability to report accurately on that point. Strange. Uh, and it was after those two events that I got a call. I think it was April 22nd, 1997. I got a telephone call from people who worked for the U.S. government in positions of considerable responsibility. They said, Mr. Davenport, we know who you are. We've seen you on television, heard you on radio. We wonder, could you come to the East Coast and meet with a group of us? They, they said, frankly, it would be easier for you to come to us than for all of us to come to you. Hmm. At that time, I was making frequent trips to the East Coast, and I told them that and volunteered to come and visit with them. That meeting occurred, I think it was Friday, the 16th of May, 1997, and we, they were 32 minutes late to the meeting. Weird. These are not the kind of people that I felt 
uh, in the least comfortable chastising, even in a jocular sense, <laughs> for being late to a meeting with some half-baked UFO investigator. But uh, we got coffee cups charged, and we sat down around a conference table. I was at the end, and they said, uh, Peter, out of our sense of gratitude for your having come this distance, we're going to tell you what our position is with regard to the UFO phenomenon as we view it inside the halls of the U.S. government. They said three things. They said, number one, we know the phenomenon is real. At this point, I'm becoming very, very interested in this meeting Yeah, because that ran counter to almost 50 years of propaganda that the U.S. government has spewed upon the American public. Number two, they said, we know that uh, these UFOs are what they appear to be, namely very sophisticated craft that are not from this planet. Number three, we in the government are very interested in them, or rather, he said, we are concerned about them. Hmm. So that was the kickoff for what had been scheduled to be a one-hour meeting. The meeting went on for four hours nonstop except wow. to recharge coffee cups. And it was a very, very interesting meeting, very interesting people, very well-educated, very talented, uh, humorous, uh, very interesting conversationalists. One of them was a fighter pilot. He flew a very sophisticated fighter aircraft. So that's what happened. And halfway through the meeting, this is very interesting, Tim. Halfway through that meeting, it's now about 12.32 p.m., they said, Peter, we have a very special question for you. They said, in all of the data that you have collected, which is considerable, have you ever run across a situation or any information that would lead you to believe that there could be people in people inside the U.S. government who may be acting in an unconstitutional fashion with respect to the UFO phenomenon? To this day, I'm not exactly sure that I understood precisely what that person posing the question had in mind. But it was a very, very interesting question. And I was stunned to silence for about three to five seconds, but finally recovered my equanimity and uh, pointed out to this individual that I had no such information, but that I presumed that the U.S. government is lying to the American people about the UFO phenomenon. At that, he nodded in sort of a non-committal way, didn't say anything, as I recall, and we went on to the next question. I still don't understand uh, exactly what the origin of that question really was. Yeah, that is strange, because at first blush you think he means maybe a cover-up, but then you almost then sort of go down the conspiratorial road, and you wonder if maybe he's asking if you thought that there were uh, government people working, I guess, at the behest of the of the, you know whatever's behind the UFOs. If that makes any sense. Yeah. So exactly. yeah, that would be a question that would keep me up at night. I'm sure. Now, what was the like? Was it just like they just kept you know asking you questions about various reports you've gotten and stuff like that? Did they ever sort of indicate, aside from the three things that they told you, did they ever sort of indicate you know where they? stand as far as what they know about UFOs. No, they didn't uh, didn't talk about that. They hinted at that. But they didn't say, aside from that opening statement, those three points I alluded to earlier, they didn't say very much at all on that. But they did tell me ahead of time that the reason 
before the meeting was that I had posted data to our website that they were very, very interested in. Uh, some of the cases they found very interesting, and they couldn't tell us, couldn't tell me why they said, but uh, the cases they were interested in were those that allegedly would place a UFO in proximity to a commercial aircraft, and that uh, that was the principal interest at that time during the meeting. Hmm, interesting. Maybe a safe, some kind of safety concern, maybe, or something like that. Has there been any sort of follow-up since then between you yes. and any of these folks at the yes. government? Yes. Yes, there have. We've communicated. That's all I can tell you at this point. Ooh, mysterious. I like it. Okay, that's well, cool. No, no, no it's just... not mysterious. Uh, <laughs> I, wanna, I, I would like to address that point. Uh, they asked for absolute anonymity. Yeah. They know that the National UFO Reporting Center guarantees anonymity. And as much as I would like to reveal who these people were and all of the details of that meeting, I cannot because I made a pledge that I would not reveal who they were. That was their request. They were invoking a widely known policy that we promote, mm -hmm. and therefore I have to honor that uh that pledge to them. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I was just giving you a hard time. To <laughs> I understand, but I wanted to make that point very, very clear mm -hmm. to our audience so they didn't think that I could willy-nilly just reveal who it was with whom I had met because uh, I just don't do that. Yeah, exactly. But, but yeah. I do is post the information, post the reports, but I do not reveal who submitted those reports or with whom I had contact or communication. Now, aside from, you know, being still in communication with these folks, have they ever sort of like brought you back over to the East Coast to do some kind of follow-up meeting or, nope. or interesting? Nope. Hasn't happened. Very interesting. Now, one of the things that we were talking about before we did the interview was just how there's been this file dump going on across the world outside of the U.S., uh, France, yep. the U.K., Brazil, Chile, Belgium, um, but obviously not here in America which, you know, leads people to wonder why, I guess, is the question. Why hasn't the government released their UFO files? Maybe I'm wondering if it's just simply because they claim that they have no UFO files since they closed down Blue Book. So I don't know. People call me up all the time and say, well, why doesn't the U.S. government do such and such or such and such? Why don't they reveal the data they have? And all I can say is, I don't know. I'm as mystified by it as you are. And I don't speak for the U.S. government. I wouldn't care to do so anyway. And all we can do is sit here again in stunned disbelief by the government's absurd position that the UFO phenomenon is not taking place. I mean, really absurd. And as you correctly point out, Tim, the government of the U.K. has recently, just a year and a half ago, announced that they're going to reveal or have been revealing their files. Uh, Nick Redfern has done a very nice job of bringing that to the uh, attention of the American, or the world's population, really. Uh, Brazil has done the same thing, France to a degree, Belgium, Chile. Uh, how long is it going to be before the old stodgy U.S. government starts revealing what it knows about this phenomenon, the UFO phenomenon? Yeah. I don't know. And I'm, another issue that troubles me is the American press, the toothless, effete, lapdog American press is letting them get away with this. And they ought to be aggressively going after it and developing sources, 
even clandestine sources inside the U.S. government to get to the real story. But the American press, in my opinion, is no longer what it used to be. What it is is now a consumption-based process. The 6 o'clock news, vapid, boring video footage of this leader meeting with that leader sitting by a fire in the White House and so on and so forth. Easy, mundane, easy to obtain information and really of no consequence in any real fashion. But that's what the American press has become. Yeah, yeah. It is a multi, multi multi-billion dollar industry. It is no longer a tradition it is just a consumer-based process. Absolutely, yeah. And you'll just look at the woeful coverage of the Iraq War nowadays. It's an afterthought to uh, to the to the press, which is just sad in in a yep. lot of ways. Yep. Um, you know, that's sort of uh, is a, the real uh, indicator of how bad things have been. Now, yep. I wanted to ask you about a specific case that you were really excited about when I first talked to you, and, and I checked it out on the website, and, and the more I looked at it, the more interested and excited I got. And it's almost, we, we, we don't even know really if it's even UFO-related. It's this, uh, for lack of a better term, car mutilation oh, yeah. uh, that happened on November 4th, 2008 in, in Illinois. Um, talk yep. a little bit about this case, and folks... Should uh, we'll try and get some linkage up to the actual case report so people can see the pictures of this car? I mean, it's it's yep. really strange. Yep. Let me take our listeners back to the site of the incident, and I agree with you. We have no evidence, certainly no proof, that it was in any way UFO related. But a young woman left her apartment. A university student left her apartment at about nine fifteen. On Tuesday night, the 4th of November, 2008, a late-model Mitsubishi Japanese four-door sedan, black. Uh, She was headed for the nearest uh, interstate, and as she was driving down a three-lane road in the center lane, suddenly her car allegedly was shoved to the right, one lane to the right. And... uh, she was shocked by it, and she noticed when she looked at her rearview mirror that that uh, outer rearview mirror was missing. So <laughs> she was so intrigued by what had happened, given that there were no cars in her proximity, there were no pedestrians, no animals, no nothing on the road. road was virtually deserted, I gather. She stopped her car within a half a block or a block, got out of her car and surveyed the left side of it, and it was crumpled in a most peculiar fashion. Yeah. And she called the police. Now, that's significant because most people who are hoaxing things don't want the police involved. Exactly. Submitting a falsified police report is uh, serious business. can get you in a lot of trouble. Well, she called the police, and they came, did a police report. And uh, we still don't know what has happened, but... Uh, the interesting thing, this is where, in my opinion, the case grows very interesting. Senator Barack Obama won the election for the Oval Office on that night. In fact, this incident that I just, just described involving a black car in Chicago happened within minutes of Senator Barack Obama being declared the winner in the presidential race. Now, Is this a coincidence? If it is, it is an immense coincidence. 
to have a black car mutilated, the left side of it mutilated, and I invite any of our listeners to go to the National UFO Reporting Center website and look at the photos. I, if you can set up a link for that, uh, so much the better. I am mystified by this case, and I've received many, many, many emails from body shop operators, uh, accident investigators, and to the man, they all state that they've never in their entire career seen such damage done to a car. And it's important to note that the damage does not involve scuffing of the paint or the surface. The the metal of the doors, and they were metallic, do metallic doors, not plastic, the metal was just pushed in in a most exotic fashion. Yeah, yeah. And you can see from the photos the nature of the damage, and everybody I've talked to and communicated with is flabbergasted by this. Absolutely, yeah, that's the, that's the perfect word for it, because, uh, you know, I had talked to you about it, and once you see the pictures, it takes you to a whole new level of, of mystification of this yep. thing. It's bizarre. It's baffling yep. of what, yep. what possibly could have done this. Now, it is. I presume since she called the police and everything, we can kind of rule out that this was just something that she did, you know, maybe she had a couple of drinks or something and, and messed up her car or something crazy like that. Chances I are, you know, the, the police would have caught on to that right away. Yeah, we can dismiss that. The nature of the evidence, uh, I think, automatically rules that possibility out. And the other interesting thing is the investigator to whom I gave this case reported to me on the 16th of February this year that the evidence from the case, that is the doors that had been carved out of the doors to be replaced, went missing, as did a copy of the report. Uh, he had taken paint samples into a laboratory to have them analyzed, and uh, they, on the same day that the doors went missing, an individual walked into the university laboratory office and said he was working with the investigator. Could he have a copy of the report and the paint chips? Huh. And both items of evidence disappeared. Wow. See, that speaks to something else going on that we don't even, mm -hmm. you know, like who, yeah. who would, why? Yep. The question yep. comes up, why would anyone want that stuff unless they didn't want yep. people like us to look into it and try and figure out what happened? So. Yeah. Yep. Now, as we said, you've been doing this for like 15 years and taking countless reports, and I'm sure it's been wearing on you, you know, just the grind of it all. Do you have sort of an end game in mind as far as your tenure as the director of the National UFO Reporting Center? You know, are you ever going to, you know, do you have any I don't know. plans to be the Bob Gribble to the next Peter Davenport, if you will? I don't know. People ask me that question all the time, and I don't have an answer for them. They're... People who call me all the time say they'd like to take the hotline over, and so far I haven't consented to that. I have no end game. And this is, in fact, a problem facing every UFO investigator. What do you do with all your files? I'm sitting here in a room with files, boxes, uh, file cabinets stacked to the ceiling. What do you do with this information? I'm certainly not going to give it to the Library of Congress. <laughs> uh, so what we need is a college of ufology where investigators, as they grow older and get out of the field, can place their files on deposit with them so that information can be filed and made available to investigators and to the public. But we don't have that. We don't have any financing. Uh, I've offered to 
provide some of this information to the University of Washington in Seattle, and they turned me down. Uh, I was disappointed by that. Yeah. But That's, anyway. Yeah, that is disappointing. Well, maybe someday we can use that silo of yours, the missile base, as the College of Ufology. Sounds like you've got enough space there Possibly. To, yep. to, to hold all of us. Um, all right, well, we'll wrap it up here because I know you got a lot going on and stuff, and uh, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, especially in case some major UFO event breaks and you're going to say, I was on Banal of America. I didn't get any reports. <laughs> so um, we'll wrap it up here. As I said, Peter, you really are a legend in the UFO field, and, and in my opinion, you become kind of a little bit underappreciated in the last few years with the explosion of the Internet and, you know, all these different places where you can send reports. The National UFO Reporting Center is still the be-all and end-all of UFO collection places. I mean, if you got a UFO report, you got to send it there, and folks should definitely check out the website, ufocenter.com, and should we give all the number here for the hotline, too? Yeah, that sure. would be fine. Okay, it's one 206 722 3000 and you only want to use that if your sighting has occurred within the last week but as peter said a written report is much 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 more beneficial to the cause than just calling up the hotline so you know put your thoughts down on paper put your story down on paper so we can have it for the files in the long term and with that i thank you once again for coming on the show peter it was great talking to you we definitely will not wait three years for our next conversation i can assure you best of luck with the national ufo reporting center People should make some donations and help you out. I know that, you know, as you said, you put all the money into this stuff. You're, you're the one really funding the whole thing. And anything that people can do to help you out in that regard, I'm sure, is greatly appreciated. So they yeah. should uh, go to your website for information on how to do that. And we'll be posting information on that point. Thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, I... I've picked up virtually all of the expense over the last 15 years, and I'm going to try to change that with uh, inviting people to submit 5 or $10 uh, contributions to our cause, and I think it goes to a good cause. So, Absolutely, thanks, a great cause. Thanks very much, Tim. Thanks for the airtime. It's been great to be back, and maybe we'll do it again sometime in the near future. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Big, big, super huge thanks to Peter Davenport for coming back on the show awesome hearing from him. I always enjoy talking to Peter Davenport. Best of luck, of course, with what he's working on up there at the National UFO Reporting Center. You should check out his website, www.ufocenter.com, all one word, pretty simple, ufocenter.com. Sorry the conversation had to be so short, but I hope we can have Peter back on the program in the not-too-distant future for another discussion on the world of ufology. Before we dive into BOA Audio listener feedback, I want to give a quick mention here in the early part of the end cap, because this is going to be a long one, my friends. Sit down and relax, because I'm not going anywhere. By the time you're listening to this, BOA 2.0 will be up and fresh and ready to roll at Benal of America, the beta version. We want your feedback on it. There will be a link to it on the show page here. There will be a link to it pretty much all over Benal of America. You'll see it. We're trying to make it look unique and different but if you're lost and you completely can't find it go to the boa homepage on the left hand menu side at the very top it says boa 2.0 it's a glowing blue button as opposed to the glowing green that we usually use click that that'll take you to the boa 2.0 beta site it is still a work in progress we're hoping to get it completely up and running and shift over to boa 2.0 as our official mothership on 1110 
So right now for the rest of December, we want your feedback on this. What do you like? What do you not like? We've made radical changes to the BOA Audio archive as far as layout goes. I want your thoughts on that. Hold tight on the columnist pages. That's phase two of BOA 2.0. So we haven't gotten to that stuff yet, but we're working on it, and uh, we're hoping to get their stuff all freshly polished and shimmied up by sometime in 2010, as soon as possible, really. Phase one here of BOA 2.0 is almost, almost done as we are in the beta stages. Once again, I want your feedback on that. What do you like? What do you not like? It's going to be kind of radical, folks. So you do want to check it out because the website's going to be completely different in a lot of ways. So if there's something you don't like, let me know. And uh, if there's something you do like, let us know that too. We want constructive criticism, though. I mean, if you love it, please do send us an email. Tell us you love it. That's awesome. We appreciate it. Jeremy Boston appreciates it. i got to put him over here huge, of course. He's the guy that did all this. I mean, he did all the work here for BOA 2.0. I was pretty much just a consultant on the whole thing. He did all the legwork. 95% of the work was done by Jeremy Boston. So when I say we, it's, uh, you know, he and I have been looking forward to hearing what's going to happen here when people check it out. But he did all the work, and I'm springing it on you myself here for Binal of America 2.0. But anyway, if you love it, that's great. We'd love to hear from you. We appreciate that. But we're definitely looking for constructive criticism so we can fix stuff. If there's bugs in places that we don't know about or you don't like the way something reads or it doesn't look right on your browser, we want to know all that stuff so we can take care of all that. So when we make the official full shift over to BOA 2.0, we don't run into any problems down the line. So once again, go to Banal of America, click the BOA 2.0 button, and check out BOA 2.0. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback, and we've got two emails this week. One is a shorty, and one is really long, but it clears up a mystery from our season premiere, so I'm excited about that. Let's do the shorty first, and uh, then we'll do the long one. AJ, no hometown listed, just AJ. Not Alex Jones, to the best of my knowledge. Here's what he has to say. I found you guys from an old episode of Red Ice Radio, and your show is awesome, all caps. You use that word a lot. I didn't know esoteric shows like this existed till 2006 when I stumbled upon Coast to Coast. Anyway, you've got a new fan. Can't wait to dive into the archives. AJ. That was a pretty recent email, so big thanks to AJ for writing in and for discovering us. I hope you do dig into the archives. They're amazing. They're awesome, if I may say so myself, if I'm allowed to. I do use that word a lot. I try to avoid it nowadays, because I know that I do use it a lot. I have some catchphrases that are inadvertent, like the wow, and uh, lately it's been absolutely, i notice I've been saying a lot, but now that I notice them when I'm listening to the show, I try to avoid them, so you won't be hearing them when we tape more interviews. But anyway, yeah, thank you for writing in, AJ. I appreciate your feedback. I am really psyched that we have picked up yet another listener. Always picking up new folks listening to BOA Audio. To those folks who are new to the program, definitely want to check out those archives. There's over 100 episodes in there that will keep you pretty occupied while you wait for the next edition of BOA Audio to hit your earbuds. We'll move on to our next emailer. It comes from Keith in Evansville, Indiana. This is the long one, my friends, so sit down, have a little cup of coffee with you because it's going to be quite a read, but I'm going to do my best to uh, get through it as quickly as possible. 
And I think you'll be excited and intrigued by what Keith has to say, because this has to do with the season premiere with Jim Mars. So let's get cooking here from Keith in Evansville, Indiana. Let me preface this by saying that I'm an enthusiastic follower of your podcasts. I look forward to each new entry like a kid waiting for Christmas. I appreciate your work and realize that the goal is to inform as well as entertain. You do well in both areas. Having said that, uh-oh, I have... <laughs> I have input on a theory that was voiced by Jim Mars on the purpose of the markings on the back of traffic signs. While he didn't claim it to be the truth, I feel obliged to set the matter to rest. I worked for the Indiana Department of Transportation for nearly 21 years as a traffic sign technician. Due to an on-the-job injury, I spent some time in the sign crew maintaining and replacing traffic signs. These signs have a useful lifespan of a predetermined period, 10 years I believe, after which the reflectivity of the covering is lost, and the state's liability is at stake. People love to sue the state. The color, red, green, orange, yellow, and blue, and shape of the strip represents the year of manufacture. Red square may mean 1995. Orange square may mean 1996. Red triangle may mean 2000, etc. If my memory serves me well, we also had a series of punched-out marks to designate the quarter of the year the sign was installed, to help schedule replacement routes. This issue reared its ugly head about 15 years ago while I was still with the crew. I left in 99. There was a rash of people spray painting the backs of signs silver to cover the UN codes, in quotes. It just made our jobs that much less bearable. Knowing someone somewhere was convinced we were working for the quote-unquote dark powers. A video that was circulated by some less-than-honest individual claimed that he had, quote, prayed for guidance, end quote, and that the Lord finally told him the meaning of the markings. Red markings were to mean these people are to be eliminated when the takeover happens. Green marking means those people are friends of the government. Locations of intern camps were designated, etc. He, quote-unquote, followed traffic routes to determine the truth of his revelation, end quote. As far as I'm aware, no one was physically harmed because of this lunatic. We did, however, <laughs> we did, however, have to switch to a month and date labeling system, more tax dollars spent, to counter this idiot. I believe that people should keep a keen eye on the powers that be. I'm an old hippie. But damn it, check the source, then check again. Then, after all has been settled, check again. The aforementioned Cretan, I like that, could have gotten somebody killed. There are a lot of good old boys out here that have a short fuse and a mindset that is anything but discerning. Bad things can happen when people blindly follow a leader. I have a teenage granddaughter in whom I've instilled a need to question, quote, facts, end quote. She doesn't think we landed on the moon. I may or may not agree, but that's my girl, passing the torch. Thank you for your time. Keep up the struggle. Question authority. Keith in Evansville, Indiana. Thank you for writing in, Keith. That might have been one of the greatest emails we've ever received here on the program. It was detailed. It was full of facts. It was written in a nice way. This is quite an interesting piece of information. So maybe we've solved the traffic sign thing. I've sent this along to Jim Mars. We'll get his take on it soon, I hope. And outstanding email. I'm glad that you sent it. I appreciate that you took the time to write such a long email with so much information and cleared up this issue perhaps once and for all. And to be honest with you, as an old conspiracy buff, this makes perfect sense to me. What Keith says makes more sense than the UN theory, let's say. So, it should give you some pause to think, folks. Uh, it did for me, and really, I think, kind of swayed my opinion on it. I don't know if I was really sold on the UN code theory in the first place, 
But now that I've heard this, I, I'm, you know, I'm pretty much ready to put it to bed. So I know there are people out there that won't believe this, I'm sure, and they'll always believe that these signs are UN codes. But, you know, we can't save everyone. We kind of just have to accept that they're going to believe that. You know, that's fine. Um, but I'm pretty swayed by this email, uh, to tell you the truth. So thank you again, Keith, for writing in. Much appreciated, folks. Perhaps a mystery solved here on BOA Audio. Two episodes after the season premiere. That's the BOA Audio listeners. They are amazing. They are informed. And they are informative. Can you top Keith? I don't know. I don't know if anyone can at this point. But I want to hear from the listeners. So write to me. It's pretty easy to do, and if you have a cool email, we'll read it on the end of the show here for BOA Audio listener feedback. Here are the methods. A, go to Manal of America, click Contact. That'll bring you to the contact screen. All the information's there, blah, blah, blah. Option number two, or B, is write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. Pretty simple, all one word, boaaudio at hotmail.com. And the third method is to join up at the official BOA Forum, the US of E.com, T H E U S O F E.com. Amazing group of folks there, awesome crew. We have so many laughs on that forum, and we talk about esoteric stuff, and we talk about BOA audio, and we love newcomers on there. We've been just going crazy talking about Howard the Duck for some reason this past week. So if you want to join up and share your opinion of Howard the Duck, get on to the US of E.com. It's been a fun conversation. Those are the three methods. Any of those puts your correspondence into my hands for a future edition of BOA Audio listener feedback. While we're talking about the forum, let me remind you once again, you've got about two days left to submit your question for the father of modern-day ufology, Stanton Friedman, for the 5th annual BOA Audio holiday special. It is going to be a festivus for the rest of us. It is going to be a lot of fun for everybody. I'm looking forward to it. going to be talking to Stan in about three days. And I've already got my questions percolating in my creepy little brain. And I hope you do too. And I hope you join up at the official BOA forum, the US of E.com, T H E U S O F E.com. Go to the BOA audio folder. You'll be able to find it pretty easily, I hope. I think it's a different color too, so it should stand out. And get on down to the uh, Ask Stanton Friedman 2009 edition thread, and you'll be able to post your question. I'm going to send out some reminders on my Twitter and whatnot later on tonight, but time's running out to submit your question. If you want to just email it to me, I suppose we can do that. I won't tell anyone. Uh, send it to boaaudio at hotmail.com, and I'll throw it on the pile for Ask Stanton Friedman 2009, all a part of the fifth annual BOA Audio Holiday Special. Check it out. Coming at you in about two weeks on BOA Audio. One of my favorite segments on the show is the thanks portion of BOA Audio. Let me roll through the list of the outstanding and amazing, the esteemed and infamous BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, A.M. Murphy, Marla Pena, our webmaster Jeremy Boston, and our contributing cartoonist Andy Carolin. The list keeps on growing, the BOA staff, so many people lending a hand now at the website. They are awesome. They are keeping this thing afloat, my friends. I'm really just churning out the audio, though I'm going to be writing a new column soon. I don't want to talk too much about that, but it's coming up, coming back to the writing scene at BOA soon. But that's not what we're talking about right now. We're talking about the staff and how amazing they are. 
they've got a ton of columns up right now. I don't even know if I can go through the list, but I will do a quick shot. Leslie's talking about respecting the paranormal, very thought-provoking material from her in Grey Matters. Regan Lee touches on some childhood memories and one that has persisted into adulthood. Creepy stuff from Regan Lee. Andy Carolan has sent us his latest edition of his webcomic, Disclosure. It is simply titled Misidentification. You have to see it to believe it. It's Andy Carolan's Disclosure. Rochelle Hawks is talking about the esoterica of Oprah in Medusa's Ladder. This is a must-read, my friends. Rochelle Hawks really has a way of finding the esoteric in everyday things that just blows my mind. you got to check out Medusa's Ladder by Rochelle Hawks. Shadow of the Shinigami from our newest columnist, Marla Pena. She is really a firecracker. If you're not checking out the work of Marla Pena yet at BOA, you're missing out huge. She really helped us prop up the website while I was off on hiatus. She's taking on the Ghost Hunters in the latest edition of Shadow of the Shinigami. You want to check that one out up in all of America. Tina Senna, a lot of buzz on what she wrote recently at BOA, Why the Vatican Believes in UFOs. You want to check that out in Esotericana at BOA. Richard Thomas, master of the BOA text interviews, has a new one up with Timusin Leflef. I don't even know if I pronounced that right at all. He is a Turkish-Irish filmmaker of the conspiracy bent. A lot of uh, buzz on this one as well, so read up on Timusin Leflef. I'm sure I'm butchering that, but read up on Timo Sin and get a look at his interesting career and thoughts on the New World Order in Richard's Sci-Fi World's text interview, and I'm hearing rumblings that Anne Murphy is on her way back to Benalla of America. I actually hold in my sticky little hands the return of Anne Murphy after four months missing. It's scary, but she's back. She's going to be at the BOA Christmas party as well. Not the holiday special, mind you. They're two different things. I'm hosting a Christmas party here at BOA HQ. A.M. Murphy of the local scene. She'll be there hanging out in a couple weeks, but that's really not fit for broadcast, to tell you the truth. Anyway, A.M. Murphy's coming back to Middle of America real soon. That is the rundown of columns at BOA. So much stuff to read. If you're not going over there, you're really... Missing out on some of the best writing on the internet as far as esoterica is concerned. And I'm not just saying that because my name's on the website, because I really have nothing to do with this except hosting it at my site. These folks are doing the work, and they're doing outstanding work. We say it time in and time out. We say it every week, but I'm going to say it one more time. If you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at BOA, you're only getting half the story. Benallofamerica.com. Make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. It's the holiday season. This is episode number three of what will be a certainly long ride for all of us, my friends. Been all America season five, I'm talking about. And now's the point of the show where we turn things over to you and we ask you to make a donation to the program. Imagine us as that scrubby gentleman at the entrance of Sears with the red bucket and the bell and we're ringing it for you, my friends. Please, please, please make a donation to Benall of America and BOA Audio. How do you do that? Simple. Go to Benall of America, click the PayPal button. That'll take you to PayPal. They know how to do these things, and they'll walk you through the process pretty easily. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards Benall of America and BOA Audio to keep the audio series and the website up and running, freely available and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Let's just wrap it up here with the preview of next week's program. We're going to go Disney, folks. 
We're talking about Disneyland. We're going to talk about the esoterica of Disneyland. Primarily this bizarre but amazing theory that Disneyland is the site of three converging ley lines. I don't know if you've ever heard this, folks. I've never heard it before. I know our guest has been on a few different shows, so I'm sure it's been out there. But it definitely is something that escaped my attention until I heard from him recently, and he got in touch with me and sent me his stuff, and I was like, what is this? This is crazy stuff. i got to get this guy on VOA Audio. He is Walter Bosley. He's the author of Latitude 33, Key to the Kingdom, An Encounter with Arcane Science and Engineering at Disneyland. Mind-blowing stuff, bizarre stuff, very cool information, and if you're not a big believer in the whole ley line thing, I was skeptical of it myself, so we don't spend an inordinate amount of time on ley lines, because there's a lot more to this arcane engineering than just the ley line theory. I bet you didn't know that the guy who designed Disneyland actually came from the Stanford Research Institute. He used to be uh, some kind of bigwig at SRI and then left to make Disneyland. I'm just going to leave you with that amazing tidbit to think about because we're going to be hearing all about it next week. I haven't edited the episode, so I can't give you a super fancy schmancy preview. All I can tell you really is arcane science and engineering at Disneyland. What more do you need to hear is wild stuff. It's Walter Bosley next week on BOA Audio. Be there or be square. You don't want to miss this one, folks. It'll definitely give you some cool stuff to talk about at the holiday parties. And on that note, I'm getting gravel voice here, so i got to wrap it up. Once again, thanks to Peter Davenport for coming on the show. Folks, head on over to Banal of America. Check out BOA 2.0 and join up at the forum, theusofe.com, to submit your question to Stanton Friedman for the 5th Annual Holiday Special. Until next time, folks, this is Tim Banal. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your support of banalofamerica.com and BOA Audio. We really appreciate you making us a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Banal, thanking you for listening and signing off.